The Dow Jones ended its best week since the last Great Depression with a 915-point drop. That was about 4.06%. But, you know, on the week, the Dow was up about 13%. And that includes uh, a rather substantial drop that we had on Monday to begin the week. So all of the gains uh, took place on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays spectacular rise which actually constituted an entire bull market condensed into three days of trading but as I said on my last podcast when something like that happens you're not talking about a bull market you're talking about a vicious correction in a horrific bear market which is the one that we've just started recently and which is a long way from over but I think what's more important than the bear market that we're going to have or that we are having in stocks is the bear market that we're going to have in the U.S. dollar. And of course, when the dollar is in a bear market, it really masks some of the bear market that you see in uh, in the stock market. For example, the U.S. dollar lost about 70% of its value during the 1970s. And of course, that meant that the real decline in U.S. stocks was far greater than the nominal decline. I mean, if you just looked at the nominal decline in the stock market, it wasn't that bad. Uh, but in real terms, uh, the Dow went, uh, you know, down to one ounce of gold from, you know, around 20. I mean, it was a destruction of the value of U.S. stocks. And of course, if you measured U.S. stocks in Deutschmarks or Swiss francs or Japanese yen, I mean, it was a complete uh, demolition. I mean, worse than any bear market we've ever seen in, in just U.S. dollars. And, and so that's going to happen again. Uh, we're going to see this big drop in the dollar and a lot of people don't remember just how bad the bear market was in the U.S. dollar during the 1970s. But what kicked it off was we went off the gold standard, 1971. And the dollar you know, went from being backed by gold to being backed by nothing. And so the market marked down the value of the dollar rather substantially. And, and so that meant that all dollar-denominated assets lost tremendous value. So if you had stocks in the U.S., if you had bonds in the U.S., if you had uh, real estate, and of course, bonds also went down as interest rates went up because the falling dollar uh, resulted in substantial inflation throughout the entire decade of the 1970s, which really forced up interest rates and eroded the value of bonds. In fact, the big bond bull market that we're still enjoying today began in 1980 because the bond market got crushed in the 1970s by the inflation that resulted from the weak dollar. And so I think the dollar is actually going to be a lot weaker in this decade than it was in the 1970s. I think the U.S. is certainly starting off the decade in a much worse financial position. But what really got the dollar falling, again, was the fact that we went off the gold standard. But the dollar remained the world's reserve currency despite the fact that it was no longer backed by gold. It got marked down, but it didn't get knocked out. And then when the 80s started, you know, we were enjoying that privilege of being able to issue the world's currency without having to also back it by gold. And so that basically gave us a license to print, and we've been abusing that ever since. But what I think is going to really start this dollar decline and make it so bad is that this time the world is going to kick out the dollar as the reserve currency. 
And so it's not just that we're going to no longer be backed by gold. We're just going to no longer be the reserve currency. And that means that the dollar is just going to be another currency. And that means that Americans are going to have to abide by the same economic rules that govern everybody else. That means if we want to consume, we got to produce. If we want to borrow, we got to save. And Americans are going to be in for a rude awakening. But my goal is to try to save Americans, at least financially, as best I can, from the carnage that I think is going to destroy the vast majority of Americans. Now, Americans lost a lot of money in the 1970s, right, due to inflation. Even if they didn't lose their money in the stock and bond market, the money they still had lost a lot of value. In fact, that's one of the main reasons that so many women entered the workforce in the 1980s. It wasn't that all of a sudden they just felt liberated and they wanted to work. I mean, of course, most women uh, feel liberated if they don't have to work, right? If they, if they have a choice, if they can decide to stay at home and take care of the house and raise the kids. Uh, you know, if you have that option, if you have a choice, I can either work or stay at home, that's kind of liberation. When you don't have a choice, when you have to go to work, well, you don't have as much liberty. And so the reason I think that so many women ended up having to work in the 80s, whereas they didn't have to work in the 1960s, is because their husbands' paychecks lost so much purchasing power as a result of all that inflation that we had in the 1970s that that paycheck, especially after taxes, because taxes were going up because inflation kept pushing people into higher and higher brackets. They were calling it bracket creep. But uh, the combination of uh, higher prices and higher taxes uh, the men could no longer afford to support a stay-at-home mom and all their kids. And so the women, the housewives, had to, you know, uh, not just cook the bacon, but they had to participate in bringing it home, right? And so that was a big change for Americans. Well, I think we're going to see another change. I think we're going to wipe out the retirement dreams of pretty much every American. In fact, most Americans who are already retired, well, they're going to have to go back to work. And the people who were planning on stopping working, well, they're just going to have to keep working until, they're, until they're, they're dead, basically, unless you could do something now to protect yourself, because this is going to be much worse than the 70s. The loss of purchasing power uh, that we're going to see is going to be much greater uh, than what happened in, in that decade. So people have to be prepared. In fact, today, the House of Representatives passed the stimulus package that passed unanimously uh, by a 96 uh, to zero vote in, in the Senate. Now, I don't even know what the vote is in the House because they didn't actually take a vote. They just, you know, took the yeas and nays. So it was a voice vote. So nobody even knows who voted yay. All we know is that more people voted yay than nay, which is very convenient for a lot of Republicans who don't have to officially put their name on the biggest increase in government spending in the history of the republic, right? If those Republicans are supposedly there and represent small government, why are they voting for the biggest increase in the size and scope of government uh, since the republic began? What really makes me so mad about the whole thing, too, is the way these congressmen try to claim that, you know, they're voting for this bill because they're really caring. Uh, they care about the people. They're very generous, right? They all want to talk about how much we're doing. Uh, people need money. We have to give them money. We need to give them support, right? People through no fault of their own, they're out of work. And so we need to provide the money as if it's their money, right? It's very easy 
to show compassion. It's very easy to be generous with other people's money. Let's see these congressmen show some generosity with their own money. How about if all the members of Congress, everybody in the House and Senate, what if they all forego their pay for a while to help cover the cost of the stimulus and the bailouts? Representative Thomas Massey, he's a libertarian Republican out of Kentucky. He was the only guy that actually tried to force a roll call vote to make Republicans actually put their names on this legislation. And of course, he was vilified. Nobody wanted to actually have to do that. In fact, Donald Trump called him out uh, on Twitter by calling him like a third rate politician. I mean, the problem is Trump isn't even a third rate president. He's lower than that. I mean, this is a disastrous bill. Right. Nobody, at least somebody who calls himself a Republican, should be voting for it. Look, I can see why the Democrats would be voting for this. This is right up their alley. This is more government, right? Big increase in government. So most Democrats at least tell you that that's what they want. But how can a Republican who campaigns for smaller government, limited government, say that he's in favor of this bill? It makes no sense. I mean, if the government should be running massive deficits and bailing everybody out and spending all this money when times are bad, well, then why shouldn't they do it when times are good? I mean, if government spending solves problems, why doesn't it solve all the problems? Why is it just when there's a really bad problem, we need government spending? But if it's a small problem, we don't. The fact of the matter is, if big government spending works during a crisis, then it works all the time. And if it doesn't work all the time, then it doesn't work during a crisis. The problem is these Republicans don't have the integrity to vote against this bill. Now, maybe Mastery could be the only guy there that has enough integrity to vote against it. But Donald Trump should not be calling him out. Uh, The problem is that Donald Trump doesn't have enough integrity to veto it. And, you know, I would not give any more money to any Republican current incumbents. I mean, anybody who votes for this. Uh, I mean, just if they ask you for money, no, just take the money and buy gold instead or something like that. Uh, In fact, I think every Republican who supported this bill should just change parties right now and just become official Democrats. I mean, that way everybody knows who they are. In fact, I think Donald Trump should change his party affiliation to Democrat, you know, because then we'd have two Democrats on the ballot, right? We'd have a choice between two Democrats, which is pretty much the choice we have all the time, except you have a rhino a Democrat pretending to be a Republican. So let's drop the pretense. Let's Donald Trump just join the Democratic Party and then we can vote for two Democrats. We could vote for uh, Donald Trump or we could vote for Joe Biden, right? It's just the lesser of two Democratic evils. And maybe you can argue that Donald Trump is somewhat less of a socialist than is uh, Joe Biden, but that's the choice we have. So let's be honest about it. Now, in fact, too, I think it is interesting because Donald Trump, right, I think it was one of his State of the Union addresses where he said America will never become a socialist nation, right? And he was specifically talking about Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders wants democratic socialism. Well, what is this bill? What is this stimulus bailout bill other than democratic socialism? I mean, this is probably the most socialist bill maybe that we've ever passed. I mean, we passed some other doozies in the last Great Depression, But by the time this depression is over, we're probably going to outdo that one. And I think one of the most socialistic aspects of this bailout, and I read the article in Bloomberg, it was an op-ed written by Jim Bianco, and it's an excellent article. If you haven't read it, you should read it. I tweeted it out. I put it up on my Facebook. But he really described the mechanism behind which the Fed is able to bail out 
all of these private companies. And the way it's doing it, it's not actually buying uh, the private debt because according to the law, the Federal Reserve is not allowed to do that. It's not allowed to officially hold on its balance sheet any securities that are not direct obligations or guaranteed by the U.S. government, which would be U.S. treasuries or mortgage-backed securities that have government guarantees. Instead, they're buying up private assets, right? They're buying corporate bonds, including junk bonds, uh, securitized uh, debt obligations secured by credit cards or auto loans or student loans, and they're going to be buying municipal debt, and they may even be buying equities, right? They might be buying preferred stock, common stock, who knows? Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Well, the way they're getting away with this thing is they're setting up these companies, right, that are going to be owned by the U.S. government. And the U.S. government is then going to borrow the money from the Federal Reserve, right, And so the U.S. government is still going to owe the money to the Federal Reserve, which means we, the taxpayers, are all on the hook for these loans. But the Federal Reserve is going to underwrite the government's shopping spree with an unlimited checkbook so that they can print up all this money and give it to the U.S. government. And then the U.S. government is going to take this money they're getting from the Fed and they're going to start buying equity stakes in businesses and buying uh, debt instruments. And in effect, they're really nationalizing uh, the means of production. They're buying all these bonds and equities on behalf of the U.S. government. So while Donald Trump was saying that America would never be a socialist nation, he's basically leading a stealth communist revolution by nationalizing the means of production. I mean, this is where it's going. I mean, it's starting down this path and it's going to get bigger and bigger. I think the whole thing is illegal. How could you empower the federal government to basically buy private assets, you know, outbid private citizens buy up assets with money that the Federal Reserve creates out of thin air. You know, what should be happening is actual bankruptcies. If companies were allowed to go bankrupt, right, then other Americans could buy those assets and get a good deal. I mean, that's what would happen. I mean, I keep hearing this again on every single network. They're talking about, we need to do this. We have to bail these industries out. We can't let them go bankrupt because we need these industries. Yes, and if we let them go bankrupt, we'll have the industries, just we won't have the moral hazard. We won't have the incompetent uh, management and we won't have all the debt. The debt is gonna be you know, eradicated in bankruptcy. We'll have new owners come in. And yes, will some people lose their jobs? Maybe, maybe a lot of these businesses need to be downsized. That's the problem. I mean, maybe the airlines need fewer employees. Maybe not as many people are going to be flying. And if that's the case, if there's smaller demand for flights, well, then we need uh, leaner airlines. I mean, maybe the same thing with hotels. I mean, there's a lot of businesses that might go bankrupt. And maybe in the restructuring, they only keep the the workers that are necessary. The ones that are unnecessary, well, they got to let them go because they got to find more productive employment someplace else. If the government bails them out and then we we keep the workforce bloated, well, then the businesses are never going to be viable and we're going to have to constantly provide more funds. But my point is, if we allowed a bankruptcy 
then private citizens would be able to buy up the assets. Instead, the government is nationalizing the assets by outcompeting private bidders because who can compete with the government? The government has an unlimited amount of money, right? They, they can write any number on their check. So if the government can outbid every private citizen for the means of production, you basically have put in place the mechanism for a communist revolution without firing a shot, right? The government could just take over every business. Now, there's nothing in the Constitution that says the U.S. government can seize property, but that's basically what they're doing. If they can print money and buy property, then they can seize it because there's no limit to how much money they can print, which means now the U.S. government effectively has the legal authority to nationalize everything. They could just buy whatever they want. Every business, every piece of real estate, they could just ask the Fed to print money. The Fed has already said that it's unlimited, it's open-ended. They will print as much money as the government wants to buy whatever the government wants. Now, of course, you know, a lot of the stuff they're buying is gonna lose value. They might be buying a bunch of bad debt, a bunch of bonds that are gonna go into default, in which case we lose the money, we the taxpayers, because then the government can never repay the Fed, which means the Fed has no way of withdrawing the money out of circulation that he just put into circulation. But this is a terrible, terrible bill. Anybody who supported it should be ashamed. If the president doesn't veto it, which of course he won't, he should be ashamed. He should officially uh, become a Democrat and admit that he and Bernie Sanders have a lot in common, that they're both democratic socialists, only the type of socialism he's in favor of is communism because he wants to go out and nationalize uh, all the industries. So workers of America unite, we're all comrades now because we already have become a socialist nation and Donald Trump is leading the way to socialism. But again, getting back to the dollar, because I wanted to circle back there and the cost of all this, because nobody is talking about, right, the, the cost, right? Nobody even asked the question, who's going to pay for all this? We talk about all the trillions and trillions, but no one cares, right? It's an emergency. We have to spend the money. Who's going to pay for it? Every American citizen is going to pay the cost of these bailouts. That's the reality. Now, how are they going to do that? They're going to do it through a loss of purchasing power of their savings and of their earnings. So every American who has dollar savings, who has money in the bank or stuffed under their mattress, or if you've got uh, you know, corporate bonds or muni bonds or CDs, uh, you've got an annuity with a fixed payment, you've got cash value in an insurance policy, you're gonna pay for the stimulus and the bailouts, right? Your purchasing power is gonna be taken away from you to fund the biggest increase in government spending in American history, right? There is no free lunch. We can't have all this government for free, right? Printing money has a cost. If it didn't, well, then that's all we do. We, didn't, we wouldn't even need taxes. If you could just print money and pay for stuff, then why have any taxes? The reason is because you can't. It's actually more expensive to pay for government with a printing press than through legitimate taxation. And Americans are about to find that out the hard way because the value of the dollar is gonna go down. And it's not just the value of your savings, but the value of your earnings. If you're getting paid in dollars, right, your wages are in dollars, those wages are not gonna go as far. Now, people think that we can get away with it because we got away with it in uh, after the 2008 financial crisis. Well, it's not gonna work again. Yes, instead of causing consumer prices to go up, the inflation that we created back then causes stock prices to go up. Yes, we had a big rally in the stock market, the bond market, the real estate market, all of that was caused by inflation. Uh, but 
Next, we're going to see a big increase in consumer goods. And that's what the price is going to be. That's where people are going to be paying for all this government. And I think it's pretty obvious if you look at the action in the U.S. dollar. And this is going to be a key uh, for people to look at because the U.S. dollar today was down about 4.3% on the week, the dollar index. That is a big drop. We haven't seen a drop like that in one week since 2009. And the reason the dollar got hit so hard in, in 2009 is because the dollar had a huge rally in 2008. When the financial crisis hit, there was this big rush uh, to liquidity, right? Everybody started buying dollars because everything was collapsing. And so you had this big rise of the dollar. But then what happened was the Fed came out with QE. And all of a sudden, the supply of dollars really started to increase because the Fed was printing them up. And that caused the markets to go up, but that also caused the dollar to start to fall. And the dollar fell precipitously uh, for a couple of years until the Fed was able to convince everybody that they were done with QE, that it was a temporary policy that had worked. Uh, and the same thing with 0% interest rates, that the Fed was going to normalize interest rates, that the Fed was going to shrink the balance sheet. And it was based on that assurance and the fact that everybody believed that the Fed could reverse the policy. Then the dollar went on this long rally, which you know has, has lasted until now, right? I think the dollar has likely peaked uh, last week, right? We'll see. Uh, but I think the dollar has peaked. And this crisis began the same way as 2008. Initially, as stock markets were plunging and corporate bond markets were plunging, there was a rush into the dollar and the dollar spiked. The dollar index almost got to 103. We traded there at the end of last week on Friday and then on Monday earlier this week, we were about the same level. But now the dollar has already started to tank. And I think the reason that the dollar didn't rally as much during this crisis as it did in 08, and the reason it started to sell off quicker is because the Fed was much quicker to launch the QE program. It took them a much longer time period from when the uh, financial crisis started really in the, the middle of 2008 till they really started doing the QE program in 2009 and maybe the, was it the, the winter. A lot of time went by before the Fed did that. And so the dollar had a big rally uh, before the Fed basically you know, showed its cards. And then when the market saw what the Fed was holding, oh, they dumped the dollar. Well, the Fed has an even weaker hand now than they had back then, because now they can no longer play the, uh, well, we're, we're finished card, right? They can't come out and say, okay, we're going to normalize interest rates. We're going to shrink our balance sheet. They can't do that. So now that we've come out and we've showed an even weaker hand, right? The Fed is printing way more money now, right? Than QE1. I mean, this is bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined. This is QE infinity, right? And now that the markets see this, the dollar is already starting to tank. So I think the whole dollar rally that was much bigger in 08 has already petered out and we're already starting the collapse. And the difference is this time, there's no way to stop the collapse. There's no bottom because the Fed can't even pretend that there's an end strategy here. There's no way that they can say they're going to shrink the balance sheet or normalize interest rates. They have to admit that that's never going to happen. And we're just going to keep on printing all this money. And because we've passed this bailout and this stimulus, which guarantees that the recession is even worse than it would have been had we not done it, 
that means we're guaranteed to have another bailout and another stimulus. They're never ending, right? They're going to get bigger and bigger. And as I said before, you know, we've extended these unemployment benefits for four months where people can earn substantially more not working than working. They're going to continue that because, you know, there's the election is more than four months away. The recession is still going to be here. So we're going to keep on paying people not to work and tax revenues are going to plunge. Spending is going through the roof. And there's no way the world is going to finance this. I mean, the world has enough problems. The creditor nations that used to have surpluses right now have their own problems. They have the coronavirus. They've got businesses shutting down. They can't finance their stimulus and ours at the same time. So they've got to walk away. They've got to balk. They've got to say, you know what? No, thank you. We don't want these dollars. We don't want these treasuries. You take them. And the Federal Reserve has already said, well, we'll buy whatever you don't want. However many treasuries you've got, we'll take them. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the, the greatest news the Chinese and the Japanese have ever heard. If they were worrying about how the hell are we going to get out of all these treasuries, now they know. The Fed will take them. They just said so. Uh, so the dollar is going to fall through the floor, and the U.S. is going to lose its position as the issue of the world's reserve currency. And we're going to go back to gold. I mean, there's no question about that. That is what's going to happen. Now, you know, the price of gold was relatively flat today. It didn't change very much, but I still think that we're sitting on a powder keg here, that gold's going to go way up. You wouldn't know that by looking at the gold stocks. I mean, they were clobbered even more uh, than the regular stock market today, even though the price of gold was basically flat on the day. Uh, so people still haven't figured out how big this gold move is going to be. I think it's going to take everybody by surprise. But, you know, I'm not going to be surprised. I'm preparing for it. I think everybody who's listening to this program should be by loading up on gold and silver and loading up on these mining stocks, as long as other investors are foolish enough to throw these stocks away. Now, I know there is a risk, and people are talking about this risk, that, hey, what if these mines are shutting down? And I know, you know, in South Africa in particular, I think a lot of these open pit mines are not operating right now because of coronavirus. And yeah, you know, when it comes to mining, you, you know, you can't do that telecommuting. You can't do that at home with your computer. You actually have to be there in the mine. Uh, but, you know, I think it's so ridiculous because mining is probably one of the riskiest occupations out there. I mean, you get in a mine, a lot of things can go wrong. There's a lot of problems. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the least of their concerns is the coronavirus because there's so many worse things that can happen to you when you're working in a mine. Uh, than getting the coronavirus. In fact, you know, most of the guys are young, healthy men who are working in the, in the mines. I mean, the coronavirus is not going to take them down. So it's kind of ironic that, you know, these, these healthy, hardy guys would have to, you know, be at home because they're afraid of getting, you know, getting the flu. Uh, but I, I can definitely see that it could disrupt production. But remember, gold mining companies, as long as they're not too leveraged, and that's why you have to buy the good companies that have the staying power, because whatever gold they don't mine today, they'll mine it tomorrow. The gold's still in the ground, and it's going to get much more valuable. A lot of these gold companies are actually going to earn more money on their gold if they sell it in the future when it's way more expensive, as opposed to selling it now. You know, there are a lot of businesses that if they lose sales, they can never make them up, right? I mean, if you're running a restaurant, and you know, you're out of business for a few months, it's not like your customers are gonna eat you know, an extra four months worth of food when you reopen. I mean, those meals that you would have sold, you're never gonna get that money back, right? But that's not the case 
for the gold miner. Whatever gold they don't mine and take out of the ground today, they're going to take all that gold out of the ground and mine it tomorrow. So I just think this is a great opportunity if people can't see the forest for the trees uh, to just keep on buying, uh, buying these gold stocks or buying my gold fund, again, to make sure that you're buying the companies that could really withstand a temporary slowdown in mining you know, while the price of gold is going through the roof. And of course, to the extent that mine production slows down, that only is bullish for the actual price of gold because if less gold is being mined, then the supply is not growing as much as it otherwise would. Although the actual increase in the supply of gold is minimal uh, relative to the existing stock of gold, uh, what's really important to the price of gold is not the supply, it's the demand. And the demand for gold, I think, is going to skyrocket, not simply because of, you know, jewelry or industrial demand. I think the demand that's going to skyrocket is investor demand and not just private investors who are going to be trying to escape inflation and fiat currencies, but central banks who are looking to replace their dollar reserves with gold. I want to just finish up this podcast, a couple of uh, things to mention. Number one, you might have noticed, uh, at least on YouTube, if you're watching my podcast on YouTube uh, the last few podcasts have been really late at night, early in the mornings. I think the one that I came out with yesterday, even though I recorded it at about five, six o'clock in the afternoon, my time, it didn't even go live on YouTube till about four in the morning. The reason for that is because of how slow my internet connection is now at my house. I mean, the upload speed, it takes forever. And I understand this is something that's happening you know, in other parts of the country, particularly here in Puerto Rico, because so many people are working from home and, uh, you know, and using the internet in ways that they weren't using it before, uh, it, the service has dramatically slowed down. So I apologize for that and getting these things out so late in the day. Now, we are able to upload the content to Shift Radio much quicker. Uh, so if you, again, if you check Shift Radio, if you're not listening to it there, if you're listening on YouTube, we are able to upload to Shift Radio much quicker. So you just go to shiftradio.com or iTunes and you'll be able to listen to my podcasts earlier in the day. You won't have to, it won't be two in the morning. I have no idea how long it's gonna take to get this one up. By the way, do you wanna mention, we are picking up a lot of followers uh, on YouTube. Now I think um, under 3,000 subscribers away from having 300,000 subscribers. I think just a week ago, I just hit 290. So we've added a lot of subscribers to my YouTube channel just in the last week or so. So if you haven't subscribed yet, just hit that subscribe button and that should bring me over the 300,000 threshold pretty quickly. And again, also, as I said, if you're not listening to my podcast at Shift Radio, do that too. I think I got up to number nine was the highest I saw myself in, in business. I was number three in investments on iTunes. That was the highest I saw. I forget where I got. I think I got up to like 183 or four overall. So I still have a long way to go uh, to climb up those charts. You know, I, I noticed somebody had uh, pointed out to me that Dave Ramsey, who, you know, had been very critical of me in the past, uh, actually said something nice about me. He read one of my tweets on his program and agreed with it. And it was basically the tweet where I, I wrote about the fact that everybody was denying that what we have now is a, is a financial crisis. And I said, of course, it's a financial crisis because whenever a country that has as much debt as our country if anything goes wrong, then it becomes a financial crisis. And he 100% agrees. I mean, one of the things that Dave Ramsey and I agree on is the problems of debt. And he talks on his program a lot about people that have too much debt. 
and he can see the problems that debt can create. And what a lot of people don't understand is that if individuals can get into problems because they have too much debt, then so can nations. Because countries are simply a collection of their individuals. And, and you don't change the law, right, or change the rules of economics just because individuals organize into a country. Because if you have a nation full of broke individuals, then the nation is broke. And so we're all levered up. We're all broke. And we have this crisis that, yes, it's nobody's fault that we had the crisis, but it's everybody's fault that we weren't prepared for any crisis. It didn't matter what it is. We had nothing saved for a rainy day. So it didn't matter what the storm was, even a drizzle. And I think we were going to have a financial crisis. But I noticed, though, I looked that Dave Ramsey doesn't actually follow me on Twitter. Uh, so I, I put a tweet out and I invited Dave to follow me on Twitter and I followed him. I hadn't been following Dave Ramsey, so I figured I shouldn't ask him to follow me unless I took the first step of following him. And I now have 208,000 Twitter followers. So I just hit 200,000, uh, I think, over last weekend. So I'm adding uh, followers pretty quickly, but Dave Ramsey isn't one of them. So I'm not even sure how he saw my tweet. Somebody must have forwarded it to him or something. But, you know, I have a feeling that if Dave Ramsey actually followed me on Twitter and, and read more of my tweets, I think he would find that there's a lot more of what I'm saying that he would actually agree with. And I think it's possible that if he followed me more closely, that I might actually get him to see what I'm talking about. I might actually convince him uh, to change his mind about a few things. And I know, you know, he's an optimist and he has a tendency to see the glass half full as opposed to half empty. But, you know, sometimes, you know, optimism can be overrated. I mean, if the situation is really dire, which I think it is for the U.S. economy, for the U.S. dollar, just being overly optimistic because that's your nature is not the right thing to do. You actually have to assess the circumstances that we're in. And, you know, if the circumstances call for pessimism, then you've got to be pessimistic. Now, even though I'm pessimistic about the U.S. economy and the dollar, I'm still optimistic that I have a solution, at least a solution that can protect investors, protect my clients. I mean, I have solutions for the nation, too. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, criticize me and say, hey, Peter, you always point out the problems. Why don't you mention the solutions? And I do. In fact, I wrote a lot about those solutions in my last book, The Real Crash, America's Coming Bankruptcy, How to Save Yourself and Your Country. And so the and your country part had to do with the solutions. But the problem is, and the reason I don't talk about the solutions as much, is because they're never going to get implemented. That is the problem, right? I can talk about the solutions all I want. And, you know, the solutions are free market capitalism. It's basic solution. I mean, I just know that the free market will handle any emergency, any problem better than any government, because the free market is going to be governed by the laws of economics and resources are going to be uh, efficiently allocated or reallocated if they're you know where they, they shouldn't be. So I know that the market is the best way to set prices and allocate resources and restructure companies. I know the worst way to do it is through a command economy for a bunch of bureaucrats to sit in an office somewhere and decide who should get bailed out, who should fail, you know, who should get this money, who should get that money. I mean, that's the wrong way to do it. Socialism is not the solution. Socialism is the problem. The solution, the answer to the question of what are my solutions is the free market. See, I don't have to have an actual solution if I believe in free market capitalism because capitalism 
is the solution to our problems. All of these problems will be solved through a market-based economy. And either you are a capitalist or you're not, right? There's not a middle ground, right? Either you believe in central government planning and that government bureaucrats know best, or you believe that the market knows best, right? And that's what I believe in. So those are always my solutions. But the reason I don't want to focus on them, and I can go into how the free market would operate, right, in, in most areas. But since I'm just talking to deaf ears, I mean, no one in Congress is going to implement any of my solutions because politically they're no good. See, the politicians don't want real solutions because their only problem is how to get reelected. And the solution to that problem is socialism, is promising something for nothing. No one's going to get elected in America today promising to do nothing, promising to let capitalism function. Unfortunately, I think that ship has sailed. Our electorate has been too dumbed down to go for that. They don't want freedom. They want free stuff. But anyway, so my, my thinking is, if you happen to follow Dave Ramsey, uh, yeah, you know, put a comment on his Twitter page. I mean, maybe say, hey, Dave, you know, why don't you follow Peter? Why don't you uh, listen to his stuff? It'd be interesting if I can get him uh, to start following me. I mean, I know Jeff Gunlock, right? He follows me all the time. In fact, I woke up this morning and the last tweet that Jeff Gunlock had was about World War II and how all these comparisons to World War II are wrong, that in World War II, we actually asked people to sacrifice. We asked people to pay higher taxes. We didn't give them tax cuts. And, and basically, exactly what I've been talking about on my podcast for the past couple of weeks. In fact, two days ago, if you haven't read it, I actually wrote a commentary on this exact subject titled, in World War II, the people supported the government, not the other way around. And so it's a pretty good commentary to share with your friends. But I really would like to get uh, Dave Ramsey to follow me. He's got a big following uh, when it comes to investors. And I think that we could do a lot of good if we can get Dave to give out some similar advice. I mean, get Dave uh, to get his audience to realize that they're going to pay. They're going to pick up the tab for the bailouts and the stimulus, that the dollar is going to collapse. And you need to be pessimistic about that to have a realistic solution, because I know he cares about his listeners. He doesn't want them to lose money. What he has to realize is that it's not about losing money. It's about the money losing its purchasing power. And if Ramsey's followers have a bunch of money that buys nothing, then they have nothing. 